Well, we're going to be looking at uh, the first passage that was read to us tonight from Isaiah chapter 9. But before we get there, we're going to talk about dreams. So let's just begin by praying, shall we? Our Lord, uh, we've been talking a lot about visions and for the future, our dreams for the future. Our Father, we thank you that you feed our hearts with hope for a better uh, world, a better eternity. Our Lord, we thank you that you sustain us through your Holy Spirit in the meantime. And we pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that you will speak to our hearts and our minds, that you'll inspire us to love and serve you with all of our being. And so, Father, we, we pray that we'll be attentive to what you want to say to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all have dreams for the future, don't we? Of one sort or another. We have hopes and dreams for our children, if we have children. We have dreams for our family. And we may have aspirations or dreams for our career, our job. Or we may dream of a, of a house we'd love to live in someday. Or we may dream of the places around the world we'd like to visit. And, you know, we get excited about our dreams, don't, they? don't we? Particularly when we have hope that they can be fulfilled. And that hope in our dreams sustains us through the good times and through the tough, difficult times that we experience in life. They're, they're all personal dreams. But I wonder if you have bigger dreams, like dreams for our church. We've got a, a great vision for our church. Do you know what it is? You should do. We get drilled enough. We've got great potential. This is our community of Oran Park, Christmas carols. But this is our vision that we long to see new life in Jesus. Come on, say it with me. Come to every home in Oran Park and the growing southwest for their salvation, the good of the community, and the glory of God. This is a big dream that new life will come to every home, not just a few, but to every home in Oran Park and the greater southwest. It's a big vision, a big audacious dream. And we've been talking over the last few months about what our church will look like in five years' time. <clears throat> and last Sunday, we looked particularly at what is ahead of us in 2018. And we've been considering those sorts of challenges that growth will bring us. And, you know, given the current trends... It's not unreasonable to expect our church congregation will double in size in the next two years. Double in size. So multiply people here by two in the next two years. Or if you come to the morning service, that's full to overflowing. And you know what? I reckon it's going to double again in the next two years after that, in the next two to three years after that. So in five years' time... We may have 400 to 500 adults meeting here on a Sunday. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? 
And I'm not counting children in that. <laughs> we have the sort of similar kind of numbers of 400 odd children on a Sunday. Uh, well, we just sort of. And that's only five years. That's only five years. We're only five years old as a church. Uh, and so our vision reflects that. It's a big vision. But I wonder if you are dreaming this bigger dream for our church. Do you see this church becoming that big, that dynamic, that vital in the next five years? I hope you do, because I do. And I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about being a part of that big, audacious dream. But I wonder if you've got any dreams for our country. Do you have hopes for how our country of Australia will develop? And are there any projects or issues that you are passionate about in the wider world, in the wider community? And what about our country's leaders? I wonder if they inspire you to support the growth and development of our country. Is there anyone out there in a leadership position that stirs you to embrace a dream or a vision of our community or our country. And as I was reflecting on that during the week, I was thinking of, the, of people in the past who have inspired nations to take action of one sort or another. People who have been leaders who have inspired whole nations with a dream, a vision of the future. One person that came to mind was President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, JFK, who in early 1961, I think it was his inauguration, uttered these very famous, memorable words, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. These are inspiring words. It was a vision, a dream, and it stirred the country. And JFK, a few months later, he actually put some flesh on that vision with this announcement that he made, I think it was about March or April of that year. <clears throat> I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Wow, 1961. Kennedy had the ability to inspire people to achieve great, amazing, miraculous things. He dreamed big dreams and he drew people into those dreams. And as we know, they achieved that incredible goal of putting a man on the moon in 1969. Seems a long time ago now. But what about leaders who inspired people in darker times? People like Winston Churchill, who uttered those famous words in World War II when Britain was facing the onslaught of Nazi Germany. Never give in. Never, never, never Never, in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honour and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the overwhelming might of the enemy. 
Churchill's words inspired a nation and inspired them to stand firm and to fight for their freedom. What about Martin Luther King Jr.? He was one of the leaders of the civil rights movement in the United States in the 60s. He was an ordained minister. And he shared his dream of racial equality in a speech he gave in Washington, D.C. in August 1963. It's the I Have a Dream speech. And I feel it was worth actually quoting a fair bit of that speech because about halfway through, he uttered these words. I say to you today that in spite of the difficulties and frustrations of the moment, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a desert state sweltering with the heat of injustice and oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day the state of Alabama, whose governor's lips are presently dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, will be transformed into a situation where little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with white little white boys and white girls and walk together as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, and rough places will be made plains, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith with which I return to the south. With this faith we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith we'll be able to transform the jangling chords of our nation, discords of our nation, into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith We will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let Freedom ring. And when we let freedom ring, 
When we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Inspiring words, powerful words. They touch the heart and mind and soul. And then there are other leaders who are memorable because they've inspired people with catchy slogans or jingles, things that capture people's imagination. Some of you may remember this guy, Gough Whitlam. It's time, 1971. And after 23 years of the Liberal government, uh, Gough Whitlam inspired so many people and Labor swept to uh, a great victory in 1971. And Whitlam brought many changes to the way our country was run in the period of time that uh, he was Prime Minister. And then there was, in later times, Barack Obama and his inauguration speech and those famous memorable words, yes, we can. Yes, we can make a difference. Yes, we can make a change to this country. It rallied people, it inspired people. And dare I mention this last one. This smiles, oh no. <laughs> Let's make America great again. Now, love him or hate him, those words rallied people to vote for Donald Trump. And now he's the President of the United States. He had that capacity to inspire people. <clears throat> but what I want to put to you, I need a drink after all that. But what do all these people have in common? It's the fact that they were able to cast a vision of the future, a future that was better than the present. They had big dreams, national dreams, dreams that gave people a hope and inspired people to achieve things, great things for the common good. And, you know, when we have confidence in the people who lead us, and we are inspired by the future they present to us, we are motivated to remain steadfast through even dark and difficult times, to make sacrifices where necessary, to persevere through trials, because we have hope in our hearts for what we're working towards. We're working towards a better future. Because we have hope. And you know, in a similar way, God gave the Old Testament prophet Isaiah a vision of the future. Yep. Oops. A vision of the future. A future that held out hope 
for people who are living in troubled, desperate times. Isaiah presented a future promising peace, justice and wise government. You know, one of the most amazing things about God in Scripture is the fact that he is never frustrated by human sin and disobedience. God never gives up on his plans for our salvation. You know, when we're embarking on a project or a course of action and we're frustrated in some way, we often make radical changes or take a different course of action. But the God of the Bible stays true to his plan of salvation. Look, for example, the fall in Genesis 3. After the fall, when the offspring of Adam and Eve continued to reject him in all kinds of ways, God acts in judgment. He floods the earth, wipes them out. But he preserves a few to continue. And he continues to engage with that rebellious humanity for their salvation. And then after the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11, he seeks to establish a new new humanity, a new community, a covenant community with Abraham, people who will recognise him and serve him. And then we come to the prophet Isaiah. We jump forward quite a bit of time. Isaiah wrote in around 700 B.C., He lived in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. And in Isaiah we read of the terrible judgment of coming on the people of God in this period of time. And it was because of their unfaithfulness and disobedience. In chapters 7 and 8 of Isaiah, we read of the judgment coming upon the house of David because poor leadership from the Davidic kings had contributed to the collapse of the nation politically morally and spiritually. And God was holding them to account. Kings and government officials were often corrupt and the common people experienced injustice, oppression and often brutality. In both Israel, the northern kingdom and Judah, the southern kingdom, many people had turned from worshipping the one true God And they were worshipping idols made of wood and of stone. And so Isaiah prophesies that the northern kingdom of Israel will be wiped out by a rising rising great power, the Assyrians. And indeed the Syrians did conquer Israel. And they deported a whole huge number of people and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And they... they, um, Uh, were well on the way to conquering Judah as well. They came right up to the gates, the walls of Jerusalem, before they were turned away. That's a story for another time. But Judah was also decimated through the Assyrians. God used them. Used the Assyrians to bring judgment on his disobedient people. But in the midst of this devastating judgment, God doesn't give up on his people entirely. And we see that a remnant will be saved and become the nucleus of a renewed Israel. And this remnant represents the truth of God's continuing presence to bless them. In Isaiah, 
chapter 9, which is our focus. We're going to land there in a minute. It makes it clear in those first seven verses of Isaiah 9, it makes it clear that God, despite having passed judgment, he won't give up on the house of David. He will not be frustrated in his promise to bless his people through David's offspring. God has a plan. And that plan we will see fulfilled by Jesus some 700 years later. That's a long time. Most of us haven't have trouble waiting seven minutes, let alone 700 years. But in the meantime, this incredible prophecy that Isaiah pronounces, this prophecy that's given to Isaiah by God, this prophecy is designed to give people hope, hope for a better future, for better times than what they're experiencing and living through at that point. Chapter 9 opens with an allusion to the dark times that people have been experiencing and how God has brought judgment on disobedient Israel. And yet through this darkness, a light begins to shine. It's like the rising of a new dawn. The sun peeps over the horizon and the light begins to flood the landscape. This new dawn is coming, but this is no ordinary light. This is a great light which is driving away the darkness. Here we go, here's the passage. And when this light comes, when this darkness is dispelled by the light, when there's light, there's no dark. You can't have darkness with light. So this light drives away the darkness. When this happens, there'll be great excitement amongst the people. Despair, will turn to joy, to enthusiasm, to excitement and celebration. They will see the hand of God at work in, in um, turning their nation around and they will see things beginning to approve. They will recognise that God is the source of this, this movement, this light. This joy is likened to the, 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 the joy that people experience when they're finally freed from slavery. And in this case, when the people are freed from the oppression of a foreign ruler. Or when harvesters gather in a harvest. There used to be a time we used to celebrate harvest festivals. And people bring all the sorts of produce and put it at the front of the church in acknowledgement of God's provision. But in these times, harvest was important. And when the harvest is abundant and great, there's great excitement and enthusiasm and thankfulness to God for providing food for the people to eat. It's that kind of joy. And it's also the joy that victorious soldiers experience as they collect the spoils of a battle or a war. But the dawning of this great light will usher in a time of peace and justice. And there'll be no more fear of oppression or captivity by foreign powers in verse 4. And then there'll be no more need for weapons of war, which we read about in verse 5. And these weapons of war, there'll be so little need for them that they can all be burned up in the fire. No need for weapons of war anymore. No need for weapons of violence. That's something you get excited about. But the amazing thing about all this is that there'll be a person 
who will bring this about. A child will be born into the world and he will become a great leader. A great leader who will lead his people to freedom. This is the divine warrior, the saviour, the Messiah, the prince of peace of the house of David who is yet to come. That phrase in verse 6, the government will be on his shoulders. That shows that he will lead the people into this new period of peace and justice. And he will exercise a rule of wisdom, righteousness and truth. And the words of verse 6, that he will be called a wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These words show that he will not only be human, who was born into this world as a human being, but he will also be God. He will be fully human and fully God. This is something we need to understand about Jesus. He'll be fully human and fully God. And those four names there express the remarkable nature of this individual and the nature of his rule, where the government will rest on his shoulders, not for a short time, but for eternity. And that government will involve eternal peace and perfect justice. I just want to unpack each of those names because it's important for us to understand what they mean. Wonderful counsellor means that he will have the wisdom of God to rule justly. He will possess divine wisdom. Wisdom that's without fault or error. He will make wise and just decisions. Wonderful decisions. We saw an example of God's wisdom way back in the days of Solomon. But then so much of human wisdom contains error. It's not perfect. But he will be a wonderful counsellor. He will exercise wise judgment Not only that, he's referred to as mighty God. This coming king will display the might and power of God in his person and life. He is the divine warrior and he will accomplish a great victory over evil and sin. And when we're talking about mighty God, this is the God who created the universe, who created this world, who created us. This is a God of power, infinite power power that we just can't imagine. But this is who he is. And he will bring perfect peace. This peace will not just lie in the absence of war. That's one kind of peace. But it will be experienced as the inner peace of contentment, security and love. And then he's called everlasting father. And that emphasises his eternal nature and the perpetual loving care he has for his people. It's like a father who cares deeply about the welfare and well-being of his dear, precious children. He will not be God the Father, but he'll be like a father to the people he loves and cares for. And he will exercise that loving care for them for eternity. And they have no fear of any external threats or injustices. He will protect them, he'll guard them. He will watch over them. And he's the Prince of Peace. 
And that means that he'll be a ruler characterised by peace. And this peace refers not just to peace, goodwill and harmony between people, but it also includes the reconciliation of sinful human beings to God. He will bring peace between God, our Heavenly Father, and us, as well as bringing peace between each other. He will return us to a new Eden when we had peace with the created order, peace with each other, peace with our Lord. This is the Prince of Peace. He will bring us into that new, recreated, new heaven, new earth at the end of the age. And of... Oops... And of his greatness, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated when he came into the world, when he was born into the world. Isaiah's vision, his dream, came to fruition after 700 years. But this was only the beginning. Because, hey, look around. We still live in a world of chaos, corruption and oppression and injustice. And so Isaiah's vision is also applicable to us. And it becomes our vision of a better future. Something that we too can look forward to. Something that we can embrace take hold of and own for ourselves. And not only that, that we're encouraged to invite others to embrace this vision as well. But take notice of that very last sentence. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This kingdom will be entirely God's work. He is the one who took the initiative He is the one who sent Jesus into this world. And it was Jesus who takes our sin, who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed himself on the cross on our behalf. And it is God through his Holy Spirit who reaches into the hearts of people and calls them to accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. God does this. And he does all this because God is passionately, passionately committed to seeing people come into a living personal relationship with him. This is our Lord. This is our loving God. And so as Isaiah looks into the future from his point, he perceives things that happening from that time on and forever. It's like someone looking at a distant mountain through a telescope. He sees this decisive world transforming rain as near. And when it is inaugurated, nothing will destroy its influence and nothing will replace it. But only the zeal of the Lord Almighty can accomplish such a great salvation. God's zeal or jealousy for his people reflects his love which desires our total and exclusive love for him. And God won't rest until everything promised 
has been established and fulfilled. Now let's just bounce forward 700 years. In Luke, the angel Gabriel appears before Mary. Mary was probably only a teenager. 700 years down the track. And he tells her that she would conceive a son. Now, I could get Meredith to stand up, and Meredith would be about, but I imagine, similar to the age of Mary at the time. Now, I think if a, um, an angel appeared to Meredith and said, hey, Meredith, you're going to be, a, you know, conceive and bear a son, yeah, I can see the look in your face. <laughs> yeah. And you can imagine how Mary was feeling. And the angel said, uh, this son's going to be called son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. Now Mary, being a good Jewish girl, probably knew her scriptures and she would have recognised the words of Isaiah's prophecy way back from Isaiah 9 in the angel's words. You see, the Jewish people have been waiting for a promised Messiah, this, this um, <clears throat> mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, who is going to come and save them from foreign rulers and lead them to a great time of glory, such like they experienced in the time of David a thousand years before. So Mary believed the angel. Mary figured it out. And it was through her that this son would be born into the world. But sadly, many of Mary's countrymen failed to recognise their true king who had come to give them lasting peace and freedom. Isaiah's vision of the present and future reign of Jesus gives us hope because it's our vision for the future as well. And it inspires us that we can look beyond the chaos of this world around us to when we meet our Lord face to face, face to face, and that we we can submit to His rule over us for eternity. And this hope and inspiration, this hope that's in our hearts, is meant to sustain us during this time on earth. And it's our motivation for persevering in living God's way, in obeying God's commandments. It may require sacrifice. It may at times be hard, but the end is so worthwhile and glorious. And you know, this is something worth remembering and celebrating in the chaos and busyness of the Christmas period. I did come and land back on Christmas. But it's important to reflect on these words, these promises, because this is what Christmas is all about. Not all this razzmatazz that goes on around us. I read somewhere during the week that there's more spiritual emphasis in Halloween than there is at Christmas these days. And when you look around, I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. It's sad. 
But this passage is also a reminder that we should be praying for those who lead us in the meantime, for our political and business leaders, for our church leaders. We should pray that they they would aspire to lead as the Lord Jesus leads. He's given us a great example, a perfect example of what it is to rule justly and wisely. To rule with compassion and a genuine concern for those for whom they are responsible. This is our responsibility. So what are your dreams? What are your dreams personally for our nation and for our church? How big is your vision? Do you own the vision of our church? Where we long to see new life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park and the greater southwest for their salvation, the good of the community, and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us that hope in you for eternity. We thank you, Lord, for these words that you gave Isaiah so long ago. And we thank you for sending Jesus to inaugurate your kingdom here on earth. We thank you for calling us to follow you. We thank you for loving us as your precious children. And that you have a place reserved for us in heaven for eternity. Our Lord, we long for that day when we will see you face to face. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray for those around us who are yet to know you as Lord and Saviour. We pray that your spirit may touch their lives and hearts. And at this time of uh, when we celebrate Jesus coming into this world, may it be a time for people to reflect and begin to understand what you have done for them. We pray for a great harvest of souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Ah, Q&A. Awesome. <laughs> Questions? Are you going to let me off easy? Sorry, when... when oh, when he sits on the throne of David... Um, because the prophecy says that he will be an offspring of David. And David would seem to be the pinnacle of uh, the Israelite kingdom, the highlight, the high point. And so to sit on David's throne meant that he would rule over Israel. But God's got a bigger vision of what Israel means. Um, so it's that, that imagery, imagery of the king over his people, but this king was going to come from David's line. And as we see, Jesus was born from David's line, the line that was preserved from you know, 1000 BC when David ruled to zero when Jesus came. So they, they actually preserved that line. That's why lineage was very important in Jewish communities, um, <clears throat> particularly 
the line of David. And so uh, to, to sit on David's throne was to be like King David. But then God <laughs> raised, that, raised the bar even higher to the king that we're talking about in Jesus. Anyone else? Okay, I'm going to hand over to Kathy. <laughs>